Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast, where we talk with experts as you shape your worldview. I'm May Lily Lee. Our podcasts originate from video interviews you can find on our website, praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at the site and subscribe or follow this podcast for our latest episodes. Today, we present the second of a three-part conversation with Mary Eberstadt, essayist, novelist, and the author of several books of nonfiction. She holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center in Washington and is Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. Today, Mary discusses her book, Primal Screams, linking the sexual revolution of the 60s with identity politics. She also shares her views on loneliness as a national epidemic and discusses how faith informs her life. Let's listen. All right, we're to social issues and uh, primal screams. And I know you've been asked this question a thousand times, so you could probably just turn the switch on and, and say, but um, I thought, you, you know, the title says uh, how the sexual revolution created identity politics. Could you explain the argument there? The argument of primal screams goes back to something else we were talking about at the beginning. The sexual revolution has created a people deficit. People today have fewer people to call their own. This is for reasons of all kinds of social trends we're familiar with, smaller families, fatherlessness, divorce, abortion, etc. Each one of these things that I've just described neutrally is an act of subtraction. It takes people out of the lives of other people. And so Primal Screams tries to answer the question of why are we beset with identity politics by pointing to this answer, which is a new answer. My answer is we are awash in identity politics because people no longer know who they are because their family situations are so fragile. And the result is a great movement into the public square where we see this frantic desire to attach to political collectives of one kind or another based on gender, based on politics, based on ethnicity. What I'm trying to point out is that this is new. This way of doing politics is new. And it springs from the sexual revolution, which divided and scattered humanity on a scale that has never been seen in human history. None of that is overstatement. It's just that there is a desire not to see it, not to finger that as the cause of what is ailing us or one cause of what is ailing us. But I think the book provides ample evidence that this is true, that people are confused about who they are they can no longer point to their families, in many cases, for solid identification. They can no longer point to a religious identification because of secularization. And so they're cast adrift, trying to answer a universal question that every person in every generation asks, which is, who am I? And that's why I think it's critical to have empathy for people who are struggling with this, including people who think that the enemy is Christianity or big bad conservatism or white men or 
those kind of um, whipping boys. Uh, we need to have empathy for them because there's a lot of genuine, deep confusion out there of an order that never existed before. Do you, you, you mentioned the word scattering, and I, I like the, the buzz phrase, the great scattering, um, that I hadn't read until I read it in your book. Um, could you amplify just, I don't know if you carry statistics in your head or anything like that, but what that is, the great scattering. Um, my follow-up question, and you can wrap this in, is did the people that created the problem, are they the ones that are also offering us false solutions to the problem they created? Uh, I don't know. Well, so the great, what is the great scattering? The great first? scattering just refers to all those acts of disruption that I just identified, things that have disrupted the human kinship chain. Um, again, since the sexual revolution, there was a technological shock called the birth control pill, and it's, it ended up rewriting human history. I argue in Primal Screams that we can see this in our politics now, in the kind of divisive, collectivized uh, politics based on emotion with very little reason attached to it. But we can also see the effects in lots of other dimensions. Again, people have fewer kin, they have fewer robust extended families. And you ask about who did this? Um, who created this problem? Humanity created this problem. It's not as if we can point to one or two people. The sexual revolution has had its apologists, to be sure. It's people who said, everything's going to be great after this. People like Margaret Sanger and Kinsey and uh, plenty of others. Uh, but what it hasn't really had is a close, critical look until now. And I think that is overdue because we are living with a lot of deleterious consequences from the way in which we have disrupted the human chain. Did, did you feel like a prophet with the summer of 2020? <laughs> the book being 2018, isn't it? It's rare to feel vindicated as a writer, but I have to admit watching 2020 unfold and all of this irrationality in the streets, crime in the streets, screaming in the streets, across the United States, this unprecedented outpouring that started with something legitimate, outrage over police brutality, quickly morphed into something else. Um, night after night of political theatrics in the public square. And what we mainly saw there was rage. And it's a rage that I think I understand, having written Primal Screams, because it's exactly what I was trying to describe. It's this, this uh, incoherent rage by people who know they've been deprived of something, but can't figure out what the name for that something is. And I think the name for that something is they've been deprived of lots of people who love them and have their backs. Exactly. Um, I'm, I'm to that question, uh, that long question, which I, it was more of an anecdote about me being in Chapel Hill about three weeks ago, where in the course of the same day, 
I had one professor who's a, a lovely lady. She's a historian of Christianity, actually, and she's one of the best professors at it. But I said, <laughs> well, are you a Christian? And she said, I think she might be, but she wouldn't admit it. She said, uh, you know, I, I admire those who have metaphysical certainty, you know. And, and so I said, oh, well, that's nice. And we talked on. But then the same day, uh, the head of a very successful Christian study center that's mushrooming said that his kids, his college kids, they're not kids, they're adults, all right? They're 18 to 22 years old, are dying from metaphysical certainty. They have none, and it's become dysfunctional. He had no knowledge that I had gotten that, that comment. So I guess it's more than just a family relation. It's also what... Do you have any comment on that? I think three things look to be closely tied together. One is the decline of patriotism, one is the decline of religion, and one is the decline of the family. Three things that I think are joined at the root because it seems that if we reduce filial piety in one realm, say the family, uh, we seem to be reducing it in others, too, which suggests that filial piety may be like a muscle, like something that has to be exercised in order to be strong. But it's striking to see these things decline in tandem. Do you, this, this is my uh, Christina Hoff Summers question. When she, when she introduced your <coughs> primal screams, she added that she thought, you were saying it was the breakup of the family, she also thought, I think that universities were brainwashing kids. Okay, an e kind of an equal vector. Any comment on that? Yeah, that universities, especially humanities faculties, are brainwashing kids is beyond doubt. There is arguably a dynamic here where the kids are extra susceptible to the brainwashing because there's no pushback by the family, because the family in many cases has lost the gravitational pull that it used to have. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wanted, I know this is, uh, you've written books about uh, life and abortion and we're at a very important point uh, in, in that with the Supreme Court right now, I think people are expecting something this year, either the same or different. Would you like to say anything about that? I don't have a specific question for you, uh, but I know because it's, it's so important. So far in our thinking about the sexual revolution, there has been no rollback, right? That's why abortion is so important, because if Roe versus Wade ends up going out the window and we have a more restrictive approach to abortion on demand, it will be the first time that there has been meaningful rollback of the sexual revolution. And it also opens the door to rethinking other aspects of it. <clears throat> I think that's terribly important. I've thought all my life that Abortion is very important as a moral issue. I've written about it. Uh, but it's also, just to take it out of the realm of philosophy and theology, it's a question of mercy. 
if the analysis of primal screams is correct and what ails people most these days is loneliness and atomization, how could abortion possibly be helping that situation? If To take that one more step, if you could... Um, Knowing you, well, first of all, you don't like to talk about solutions all that much. <clears throat> I've heard you say that more than once. Um, and you probably know that anything that's forced on a society beyond a certain point hits diminishing returns very quickly. But if you could legislate two or three things, mm -hmm. what would you legislate? If Mary had the, if you were Queen Elizabeth back in. <laughs> In 1600, what, what would you do? The first thing I would do is enforce the laws against obscenity. We have such laws. We just don't enforce them. We assume that the Internet is this all-powerful thing and that people should be able to get anything they want on it at any time. Pornography is one of the biggest problems in America. It is destroying young men. It is rendering them incapable of romance and marriage, and that is a big problem. We shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it. I once went to a conference for a weekend where there was nonstop testimony by therapists and others who treat this problem, and it was harrowing. It's something that we should do something about. So if we are thinking about what would help the family in America, that's one thing. It's not the only thing. I am not one of those who carries water for the nation of Hungary in particular. However, I note that they are experimenting with family-friendly policies. For example, a mother of four or more is no longer subject to income tax, period. They have also attempted to tie student loans to family formation, in other words, to get preferential rates for people who Mary, these are experiments worth watching and worth trying, it seems to me, once, once the results are in. They also, in Hungary, learned something unexpected, which is that the abortion rate went down when they started experimenting with these incentives for family formation. Again, these are experiments worth trying. So the first question about feminism, I'll just kind of say it, is a, what I'm calling here a fourth wave developing. Is that real? You know, where you're, you're readjusting, kind of forgetting about the third wave and going back to the second and doing this. No? Well. Overstating the case? About feminism, I think feminism went astray when they made women and children natural enemies. That was a conscious ideological decision, and I think it's wrong, but it also means that the various waves of feminism don't interest me that much because I think they are all going in the wrong direction. Now, feminism and the entry of women into the workplace has raised very important questions, obviously. For a while, women were told that the most important thing they could do was to have a career. There was emphasis on the material 
as opposed to the immaterial. To the extent that that balance gets more righted, I think that would be a great thing. Uh, but again, a feminism that embraces abortion is on the wrong track. A feminism that wants men to be better men is a feminism that is a positive kind of feminism. And Erica Bakioki, as you know, has done a good job bringing out that history. Um, yeah. Um, I, th I thought it was an interesting observation that she made a lot in the book that it seems uh, as if feminism is all about, when, when, when the music stops, women are supposed to be more like men, which is not to their advantage necessarily. No, it's not, not at all. It's not fulfilling to them. They don't like it. Is that, is that? This is another consequence of contemporary feminism. In the perfect phrase of Ashley McGuire, it makes women into failed men. In other words, if they can't do everything men can do, they are somehow failed men. We're seeing this in the headlines every day about uh, women's sports. This is something that I feel strongly about. I'll tell you something else not known in the wider world, but one of our children uh, was a very serious athlete uh, in volleyball and went to the Junior Olympics as a female athlete. And had her team tried to integrate a male onto that team, let, it, let alone the questions of whether that is just or unjust to the female athletes, simply from the point of view of safety, the parents would not have stood for it. So I empathize a lot with what parents are going through who have daughters who are athletes who are now being treated like failed men by the integration of biological men onto their teams. What do, you, what do you think is the reason? Why, why are we having such a hard time stating the obvious that our biologies are different and that's okay? Why, why, how has that developed over the last 20 years or so? I don't know, 30 years. It's a very deep question, and yet I think part of the answer is prosaic. The less people have experience of babies, families, birth, death, and these other elemental things, the more foreign these things are to them. So for example, we have medicalized death, and I don't say that because I want to go back to a world in which uh, we lived until the age of 30. But most, many people will go through life never having attended a deathbed now. This is also a consequence of the shrinking of the family. And similarly, many will go through life without having had a baby, maybe even held a baby. And so this kind of experience, which used to be so universal, has become rare. It's rare, maybe overstating it. It's become something that needs explanation, something that people used to do all the time that taught them things, like how to take care of a creature smaller and weaker than you are, is now something that is a conscious choice. This again is more fallout from the sexual revolution, but I think it's part of the confusion out there. People do not have literally hands-on experience of some very basic things. And this also is something that can be laid at the door of feminism for 
teaching women for generations now that they need to get their head start in the marketplace before they think about marriage and children. That's exactly the opposite of what should happen given the biological realities of reproduction. It's true if you think about it, the, what, what having children does is make you more tender in a certain way and being around death more makes you tougher in a certain way. And both um, are, are tendencies that we're getting farther away from to our disadvantage. All right, so let's switch to um, religious issues. Uh, that's, I hate that title, but I want, that means your book, It's Dangerous to Believe, which, again, that's sort of a prophetic book, because um, I didn't really appreciate how dangerous it was when I read it, uh, but I've noticed since. And uh, could you explain why you would use the word dangerous in the book there? First of all, of course I don't mean dangerous in the literal sense. There are Christians in this world on this very day who are being killed for the faith. The United States is not a place where that happens. <clears throat> but there is no denying that it is tougher to be a believer and enjoy access to all the better places these days than it used to be. And the question is why? One answer that I've come up with is that we have now, thanks to the sexual revolution, created a, a rival faith, a rival secularist faith that operates to protect the revolution at all costs. And we see this because it has the equivalent of secular saints like Margaret Sanger, <clears throat> the equivalent of sacraments. Um, and I've written about this at some length, including in that book, It's Dangerous to Believe. So the bottom line is we need to understand that the struggle out there is not between religion on the one side and no religion on the other. Everybody has a religion. It's just a question of which one you pick. And at the moment in the United States, the two main rival religions are Christianity on the one hand and this secularist faith that protects the sexual revolution on the other. This is where the entire culture war is coming from. Is, is there anything that we are doing, this question is not in here, that you and me being Christians are are we doing things wrong to create this animosity, or are the, are, is the clergy, broadly speaking, creating some of the problem? I mean, it, it's, I would think that the standard trope is, well, look at the religious wars. Look at how Christians killed each other prior to 1648. Okay, well, that was a long time ago, and maybe it worried our founding fathers. Maybe they were still looking back 100 years and wanting to create less tension in religion with the Enlightenment, but that's not an issue anymore. Are we doing anything wrong? Is it? What do you think? I don't think the idea that Christians are doing something wrong is the answer of first resort here, which is not to say that Christians are always right. To take the example of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, some of the Catholic Church, has been scoring own goals in the form of these sex scandals uh, that we still uh, are enduring. So it's not the case that Christians are always and everywhere right. 
But belligerent secularism is definitely the aggressor these days. Things can be said of Christians that can't be said of other groups, including secularists. What, what is your, um, this, this is a big question. I, I did a blog post on this where I stacked some books and like the, the key one is the Benedict option, you know, where it says, well, we need to withdraw. That wasn't, that wasn't really the argument as in full, but what do you think Christians need to do to live in the world today? What's the answer there? I think part of the answer is a rhetorical question. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? There's a lot of free-floating fear out there, fear of being smeared on Twitter and other forms of social media, fear that somebody's going to make fun of you, uh, fear of the Thanksgiving dinner table and what your uncle might say. And my response to all of that is, what are you afraid of? If you're a Christian and you believe what Christians believe, you have no choice but to be engaged in the public square. This doesn't mean that you have to subject your children to anti-religious instruction in public schools or substitute secularist religious instruction uh, in college, but there's too much fear. And you know, John Paul II was very good at zeroing in on that same thing and repeating that you're not supposed to be afraid. Mary Eberstadt, Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. Join us next time when Mary discusses her take on the future of the Catholic Church. That and more on the next episode. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And visit us at PraxisCircle.com for building worldviews.